Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. That's right, we had so much fun the first time around that we decided to come back for a second season, leaner, stronger, better than ever, and uh, we really hope that you guys are going to enjoy what we have in store for you this season. My name is Jason Peters. And with me today is the man who once threw an intramural basketball game for the mob and spent the following three days being hunted down by Peter Jackson, Mr. Ryan Sebo! What's up, Jason? We're back, baby! Hey. How you doing? Can't get rid of us that easy. I know. Uh... <laughs> For better or worse, here we are. Right, right, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> no, this is great. Uh, you know, we started this last year uh, during quarantine, and now we have no excuse to do this, and we're doing it anyway, and I'm really proud to be back and uh, <laughs> uh, in this brave new world we're all living in. Everyone's just out there free-mouthing it. No masks, just... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, more interesting than that, though, I kind of want to go back to this, uh, this, this Peter Jackson incident. So, like, I, I, I think the people need to know... What exactly was he doing working for the mob? Did we ever get to the bottom of that? Because it seems like a weird dude to be hired by the mob to go do their dirty laundry. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if you've seen Peter Jackson. It doesn't look like he's ever done laundry. So <laughs> Dirty or clean. kind of a... Yeah. I mean, that guy uh, just lives in Hobbiton. Uh, I'm convinced. Uh, he he built it and now he just resides there forever. He could be. His, well, uh, you know, maybe maybe he's hiding out there. Maybe that's why he chose New Zealand. I had actually heard that he had to pay off a mob debt from the significant losses of his previous film, Meet the Feebles. And that's what that whole thing was. He was paying it back kind of like uh, the film we did at the end of last season, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Dude, I don't think peter jackson has trouble paying off any debt not anymore, anymore I, think no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that man's gonna be all right um, i think he built the tower from the lord of the rings and that's where he lives now yeah i mean when you bring up new zealand um i just think taika watiti jermaine clement and peter jackson run everything down there i think that <laughs> peter jackson's the prime minister or whatever they have going on uh very little is known to me about new zealand it's kind of like the world's best kept secret. It's the uh, the cool kids club down there, and uh, and he partially runs it. Uh, that in my mind, and that's the deal. Absolutely. So why wouldn't he be involved with the mob? You gotta you gotta you know clean that money up somewhere. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, the people aren't here for improv, Ryan. The people are here for our brilliant insights into film and cinema history, and we have got all that and more in spades for them today, Ryan. Tell them what we're going to be looking at today. Play them hits, my friend. We are looking at the 1992 horror comedy classic, Braindead or Dead Alive, depending on uh, where in the world you watch this. Uh, directed by Peter Jackson. 
Letterboxd has this referenced as some things won't stay down even after they die. Uh, when a Sumatran rat monkey bites Lionel Cosgrove's mother, she transforms into a zombie and begins killing and transforming the entire town while Lionel races to keep things under control. Uh, Jason, let me tell you, I scoured the internet and that's about as long of a breakdown as I could find of this film. I'm sorry if it was a little brief, but uh, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I really love this movie. This was something I've seen before. I was really bummed out to find out that uh, this wasn't more readily available. I'm sure you're going to get into this, but this was only for me available on the YouTubes. Yep. Uh, the good news is they had the uncut version, so I was able to watch uh, all uh, guns ablazing here with uh, Brain Dead slash Dead Alive uncut. Um, yeah, loved it. What did you think about this movie, Jason? Yeah, dude, I loved it as well. And we're going to go into why right after we hear the trailer for Dead Alive or Brain Dead. On this picturesque block, in this manicured home, something evil, something terrifying, something horrifying is haunting Lionel. His mother. I thought I told you to spray this house. The place is infested with vermin. Although she was a little strict. Look at this dust. It's an inch thick. He never wished her any harm. You look after me, Lionel. Until... <laughs> Your mother's dead, Lionel. Now, whatever Mom's got, has caught on with the neighbors. She's been you, know you can pray. Oh. I kick ass for the Lord. You can plead. You can beg for mercy. But nothing you can do will stop. Because how do you kill something that's already Trimark Pictures presents a modern masterpiece of horror. Your mother ain't my dog! Dead Alive. Party's over. So yeah, Ryan, uh, do you want to just let the listeners know real quick, you touched on it before, this film really is not available out there. It's really hard to find. You can't just go on Amazon or any of the different, you know, subscription streaming services, your HBO Maxes and your Netflixes and whatnot. But there are some very good Samaritans out there that have gone through the trouble of getting the film up on YouTube. So as of the recording of this episode, there's two files. One of them, I believe, is a high definition cut of the American version, which is 10 minutes shorter than the international version, which is referred to as Brain Dead. And it's funny, Ryan, because I remember, I think this is the first time I've ever seen the uncut international version of Brain Dead, because I always wondered where the the box art came from. You know, the 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 scene where the 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 
baby's hands pulls apart the face. That's like the right. right. And, and, and that scene was never in the movie. And so I was always just like, oh, well, it must be like some cool interpretive art or something. And then when I saw this one, I was like, oh, shit, like there's the scene, dude, like awesome. And like and I don't know why they cut it. I mean, it's so it's so silly and over the top and like. And none of this, you know, looks real to any sort of degree. I don't know why they couldn't give us those extra 10 minutes, but a lot. Yeah, I mean, I would watch like something like uh, anything from Clive Barker, really, uh, from this era. Lord of Illusions yeah. or any of the Hellraiser films or Candyman. And those things are way more uh, graphically intense uh, to me personally and, and how it, you know, leaves me feeling. This is silliness. This is uh, over the top schlock this is a more on the this is this was more on the wavelength of like a trauma film yeah. or even like evil dead which we've referenced many times on this show so um just you know and even the blood doesn't you know it's very thick uh almost oozy uh blood um a puree of blood if you will not anything believable definitely so. yeah yeah so let's go ahead and uh let's start as we do at the beginning and get into this film at the beginning <laughs> so ryan i don't know if i think we ended up watching the same stream i think you told me that there was something wrong with the audio so did yours also as well just start off with that very very opening placard of like the old lady on the horseback with like the Yep. <laughs> I don't. Is that like the <laughs> Queen of New Zealand? Once again, guys, uh, we really need to stop talking about foreign films because it, all it does is expose how ignorant we are about foreign politics and geography and things like that, at least for me. But do you know anything about that, Ryan? Uh, yeah, it was uh, some homage to the Queen, and, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, it, it opened all patriotic and everything. There were some uh, comments that I read online saying how silly that was that, uh, uh, you know, it starts off all re referential, you know, reverential and, uh, you know, serious and <laughs> yeah. God save the queen and all of that. And, uh, yeah. and, then it, and then we d devolve into this madness. Um, there's even a scene in the climax of the film where uh, he turns a picture around. I guess that's a picture of the queen as well that uh, out of respect for the monarchy, he uh, flips that around so it doesn't get splattered with blood and she doesn't have to witness what he's about to do. So interesting. Look at that. Yeah. Peter Jackson's showing some respect. Show some respect. So when the movie opens proper, we get these two guys, and they're in a crevasse. They're carrying this wooden cage, and it's an explorer and a Sherpa guide. They're rushed by these sort of almost like Temple of Doom natives with these giant garish headdresses. And, you know, we see some of the future Lord of the Rings camera work with the Dutch angles and the wide lenses and whatnot. Sort of very specific to his style. And it gets sort of everything like this distorted, hyper-real look. The uh, natives demand that these two return what they describe as a rat monkey or face severe consequences. At which point, the New Zealand zoologist pulls out a gun, fires it, they run away, but they're also chased after they take off. There's these other guides that are in a truck and they basically like zoom off, the zoologist hops in, and then he's bitten by the rat monkey and all of a sudden these blood spots start appearing on his skin and the guides just stop the truck throw him out and proceed to like hack his limbs off and this is in like an opening like two or three minutes of the film and definitely setting up what is going to be a common theme ryan of limbs being severed <laughs> and blood being spurred yeah they let you know right up front um it's also worth mentioning uh, i don't know if you were going to get to this or skip over it but uh did you notice this was uh, this all took place on skull island no i didn't 
Yeah, it, it introduces uh, their location right up front uh, on tech with text on the screen that this was on Skull Island. Oh wow! Um, that, which is a obvious toss to King Kong, which he went back to remake and uh, do later on in his career. So uh, King Kong was a huge inspiration to him and all his stop motion animation and stuff like that, um, along with like Ray Harryhausen work and everything. Uh, and you can see that shine a lot in this film. Yeah, especially with the, the rat monkey. And, that's where the that's where right, the beautiful claymation stuff. shines through. <laughs> <laughs> and puppetry and stuff like that. Right. All the miniatures and things. Uh so yeah, I also really liked at the end of that sequence where like they, you know, he gets the blood spot on his head and then they they straight like hack the machete into his head and it squirts out and just the the animation on like the title card of saying brain dead in that like blood splatter sort of thing like it was so <laughs> specific to the 90s dude like that reminded me so much of like you know things like the garbage pail kids and ugly kid joe and splatterhouse like you just saw that aesthetic and it was only in like the early to mid 90s that you really saw that right i would agree yeah so and then the uh, rat monkey is put on a plane and he's brought to New Zealand as the credits roll. Now, here's the thing. If that sounds, listeners, like a lengthy description for the first three minutes, buckle up because this movie. Look, Ryan, we've talked about this before. OK, when it comes to genre films of which this is, you know, pretty heavily genre film. Uh, we've talked before about how kind of there's certain of those films where it doesn't lend itself well to sitting down with a notebook and and really analyzing it. That was not the case with this movie at all. And it actually only served to heighten my appreciation for the film, looking at the fact that, like, in this film, every single action that takes place is motivated, right? And so often, especially when it comes to A, horror, B, comedy, C, jamming them both together, you sort of get these very lazy setups and executions, and we as an audience are very forgiving because we're not really there for deep plot and characterization, right? Like, we're just there for cool monster effects and gore and shit like that. So this movie, when I was, like, sitting down, I honestly had the most amount of notes of any film that we looked at in season one without exaggeration. I was shocked. I actually had to pause the film several times because I could not keep up with the amount of notes. And when I was like trying to consider exactly what was going on and really looking deep into into what was happening and the way things were unfolding, it's that like he doesn't take anything for granted in terms of like, Every single action begets the action that follows it and was inspired by the action preceding it. And we're going to go into that over the course of our examination of this film. But for a genre that's generally pretty unmotivated and just kind of gets away with being lazy, I I was shocked to find that this film did not suffer from that at all. And it really made me respect it. I mean, this really was an introduction to what the what Peter Jackson would become, and it was a masterclass in things that he was learning on the fly how to do. I mean, this was, you know, his THX, you know, eleven thirty eight or whatever it is. You know, this was his early work, and this is what we bring to the table on this show. This was a uh, very, very, very good selection, I think, to kick off our season two, and I really am glad because not only was it fun, and it was a fun romp all the way through to the bitter end. Um, but it was also very skillfully made for what it was. And, uh, right down to the, uh, practical effects, 
Um, the guy that did this and feebles and, and bad taste before this, uh, Richard Taylor is the effects guy that was Peter Jackson's homeboy from the start. And this guy founded Weta, uh, oh, wow. who obviously went on to go do uh, all the Lord of the Rings stuff and, you know, helping out with uh, doing all the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe films uh, all the way through Avatar. So uh, Richard Taylor is a badass. And this is where he started, <laughs> you know, making all this crazy nonsense with the little zombie baby and uh, zombies fucking and the whole thing, dude. It's bananas to see where these people went. And, uh, you know. Uh, I had to ask myself so many times uh, throughout this film, uh, but the answer was very relevant, uh, you know, uh, or very quickly found that, you know, I, I kept thinking, who gave this guy $400 million to go make Lord of the Rings? And that's a story <laughs> all its own. But uh, how that transpired yeah. and how he played studios like Miramax and New Line Cinema against each other yeah. to, you know, think the other guy was making it. And, and so until he finally landed on the deal he wanted. And, and that is a tremendous uh, testament not only to Peter Jackson's filmmaking, but also his business savvy amongst, uh, you know, Hollywood types. So because um, he was going up against the Weinsteins and shit like that at the time. So uh, who were not playing around circa 1996, 97. Um, so. Yeah, Richard Taylor doing the effects and, and, and a lot of the tropes that you see, like to your point, which you said earlier about how Peter Jackson films force perspective, how he used practical effects, even a lot of the zombie uh, makeup was very reminiscent to the orcs and Urukai and things like that from the Lord of the Rings saga. So I was delighted to see. I mean, I had seen this a long time ago, but uh, I don't think I watched it from this lens to your credit, to your point where um, I could take notes and really break down these things for what he was doing and not just let it wash over me. And man, am I glad I did. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Ryan, that it's probably not an unfamiliar trajectory for a lot of Hollywood types. Like if you really look at people that are heavily into like makeup and effects, like they tend to really be into horror and sci-fi because that's where the imagination lies. Right. Because they're not trying to be, you know, beauty makeup artists. They're trying. So, you know, you look at, uh, who's the guy we, when we did video who's the Rick Baker, right? That yeah. guy would later go on to do, like, The Nutty Professor, which I'm sure he got paid up the butt for, right? But that's not what right. he was passionate about, and that's not where he started. He started out doing weird shit with David Cronenberg, who was like, Rick, I need a vagina belly. What you got for me? He's like, I got you, fam. <laughs> Give me a few weeks. I'll come up with something for you, right? Um, and so, you know, you've got this guy. Even, even musically, right? I mean... Trent Reznor right now, he just did Soul. Trent Reznor scored a Pixar film. And look right. into what that man was doing in his early 20s and who he was doing it with. And you would never put money that that man in his 50s would score a film for a company like Pixar, you know? So sure. everybody everybody grows up. Everybody settles down. Everybody moves on to – everybody gets the giant paycheck opportunity and – weird genre shit really doesn't pay the bills at the end of the day, but it's fun and it's where you get your start. So, well, and I also think too, movies like this or, uh, you know, certain genres of music or, or whatever, you know, where these people cut their teeth, it's neat uh, to see artists go into the dark corner of the room so they can just do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Uh, where there's no judgment, there's no spotlight on them. They can just experiment 
and really learn and cut their teeth versus other artists that are thrust out into the spotlight early on because they make these big wholesome dramas or these big sweeping epics. Um, you know, that I think that might, you know, play a little harder on an indie filmmaker. The pressure's definitely there. Um, you know, you even see some filmmakers like Chloe Zhao or, or you know, the getting all this attention for Nomadland and and then our second film is Eternals. Um, you know, God bless her. And these are great films, you know, so, some of these uh, early filmmakers. But then you have people like Colin Trevorrow, who did Safety Not Guaranteed and gets thrust right into Jurassic World. And I have just not been a fan of the Jurassic sequels moving forward any of the jurassic world franchise um i think sometimes these filmmakers suffer or stumble a little bit because they're thrust out into the market too soon so you know back in the day you know there was no huge market for a movie like this so you could just go fucking over the top and do whatever the hell you want and if people watch it great you know uh he's got three mil in the budget which is considerable but not you know so big that the pressure's on i think so uh yeah, uh, and he just got to really, um, you know, like you said, with the wide-angle lenses and the Dutch angle, just play. Go do it. Go make something and see what works and what doesn't. But either way, you're going to learn some powerful lessons. And uh, again, he was able to take a lot of these things, as was Richard Taylor, as you know, Fran Walsh, all these people that work on his team with him uh, to move forward into things like Heavenly Creatures, Frighteners, and Lord of the Rings and beyond. So uh, kudos. Um, you know, this was a time when you could make a movie like this, when uh, Rodriguez could make El Mariachi. Uh, you know, and, and just try shit and see what worked without any judgment. And, uh, you know, a lot of these things make it to film festivals somehow back then. This would never make it to a film festival these days. So uh, different times as well, uh, you know, back in the early 90s that you could kind of experiment and, and take some risks. I think that uh, with the digital age and, and so much um, being able to be done on a shoestring budget, cameras being so uh, cheap now, everything being shot on digital, I think the bar has also been raised for indie filmmakers and smaller filmmakers like this, even in the horror genre, that um, you expect a little more, and that's unfortunate as well, that you can't just go out and make some schlocky shit. I mean, people still do, um, but... To, to your point, taking this conversation back and getting back to the film, uh, this was, as I was watching it, this was everything I wanted Willy's Wonderland to be. I kept yeah. bringing up Willy's Wonderland, and I thought it was really suitable that we finished season one with Willy's and then started season two with uh, Dead Alive because, um, you know, that the, the, the costumes were better, arguably. Uh, you know, a lot of the makeup, the uh, location was there. All the pieces of the puzzle were there. Um that could have been this, you know, 2.0, and yeah. it wasn't. And I think that that's where, you know, some of our disappointment maybe lied. Absolutely. So getting back to the film, we are introduced to Paquita. Now, she's the shopkeep. She's going to be our sort of, you know, heroine uh, love interest for the rest of the film. And she likes this sort of doctory guy that comes to see her, but the grandma tells her fortune, and it tells of another man that she's destined to be with, which is indicated by a symbol of the star. Enter... Our hero, Lionel, though he's not much of a hero, he's kind of on the nerdy side and he's definitely, you know, bashful and, and very timid and, you know, she doesn't really think much of him, but then he knocks over the beef jerky and it makes the symbol of the star, at which point Paquita, being probably the supernatural type, is like, oh, this is the love of my life and she starts going in hard, man. So, you know, she goes to visit him, Lionel, that is, uh, at the house uh, and Lionel lives with his mother and his mother is a very domineering sort. You know, she definitely plays into that archetype of like the, the, the jealous domineering helicopter mom yeah. and kind of a debutante almost, you know, the, uh, 
uh, got the big house on the hill. You know, she obviously comes from an astute family at some point, but maybe lost her mind a little bit or something went awry. So uh, lives there with her son, a little crazy. Kind of got some psycho Norman Bates vibes coming uh, from some of this uh, relationship between him and his mother. Uh, he's also mowing the lawn and there's a tremendous... Uh, foreshadowing yeah, shot definitely. where we go under the mo- lawnmower as he's uh, mowing it mows literally right over the top of the <laughs> I um, love that shot having seen this film before I, I really appreciated that because I knew where it was going to take us definitely <laughs> yeah I, I missed that on previous viewings but uh, it definitely stood out this time and yeah so and Paquita like I said she she visits him when he's doing this mowing thing convinces Lionel to take her on a date to the zoo to your point, you know, almost like Norman's Bates's mom in Psycho. She's watching from like the top floor of her giant house and has the sinister look. So when they leave, you know, they're going to the zoo. They're having a great time. You know, their love is blossoming. And Lionel sees a hand in this fountain, like the the, the large water area of this version of this bubbling fountain and has a brief monologue about uh, his dad dying and. As far as he can recollect, he died when he was trying to save young Lionel. And so, you know, that sort of haunts him to this day. We also see shortly thereafter that the mother has decided to stalk the two of them. And so she's watching from a distance. She ends up by this monkey exhibit in which our Sumatran rat monkey is now residing in all of its claymation <laughs> glory. And it's just, yes. it is brilliant. It's right out of like that green jello, uh, three little pigs video back. Like again, right. That early green 90s. jelly. Yeah. 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 Well, no, here's the thing. They were originally called green jello, but oh boy. craft made them change it legally. Like they sued them. <laughs> and so they had to change it to green jelly. If you happen to, you can actually find original pressings of the original, that's called Green Jello. Also, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, very funny. It's like out of print. I'm sure it's like a collector's item. But no, also very funny. They're literally two towns over from the town that I live in <laughs> over here in wow. Los Angeles, which is, again, also a very sort of, you know, a rural hillbilly ish town. Uh, yeah, they're not from like the cool part of the city at all. So they actually it's have funny a you bring them up because uh, I think they got uh, some new music. They dropping. do. I just they have a Twitter new album <laughs> coming out after like 30 years or whatever it is. That's nuts. Yeah. So if you anybody listening, by the way, that hasn't seen that video, go to YouTube right now, either before or after you watch Dead Alive there and type in green jelly because Jello's not going to come up. Green jelly, three little pigs. It's a masterpiece of claymation early <laughs> 90s. It just and that encapsulates. I mean, it was right there with those Primus videos, right, where everybody was doing way oh, too yeah. many psychedelics and making these claymation yep. videos. It's very Primus. Yeah, definitely. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, and it's it's you know kind of along these sort of lines of of this movie Dead Alive. It's sort of kitschy and zany and over the top and not meant to be taken seriously at all. So do yourself a favor and check that out. Now, Ryan, the Sumatran rat monkey ends up biting the mom's arm, and this is kind of what sets the entire thing in motion. This is what's going to cause her to be infected and go on to infect all of these other people down the road. Uh, now, a couple things. Firstly, I did think it was interesting that we talked about. Uh, I, I didn't pick up on how quite how zany the film was the first few times. And I don't just mean that in terms of 
the energy and spirit, which is is pretty easy. But in terms of like the way it's shot and the way the colors are, like it almost has one of those like John Waters, you know, shooting in Florida, or like what Tom, uh, or I'm sorry, what Tim rather Burton did with Edward Scissorhands, you know, that very just right. sort of kitschy aesthetic, you know, with the bright pinks and yellows and things of that nature. I, I missed that the first time around. Yeah, it all kind of uh, ties in with that final scene, which is all that color uh, because of the blood and the slime and everything else that's going on. But uh, yeah, it, there's a definite color scheme that goes on throughout the film that, uh, and, and it's kind of dreamlike, you know, it starts out kind of um, almost like there's a, uh, a some kind of filter on the lens or something. Everything's kind of, you know, uh, soap opera-y and all of that. Yeah. And of course, you know, being pal and shot, you know, uh, 30 uh, frames per second over there in New Zealand and everything, it kind of has a certain look to it that's a little off, a yeah. little different, has a British feel to it. Um, but yeah. And the music is kind of zany, you know, um, you know, that's one thing that Peter Jackson did upgrade over the years <laughs> was getting Howard Shore to step in. But uh, yeah, other than that, um, you know, I, I, the whole rest of his team have pretty much been on since the beginning. And so, uh, yeah, it's neat to kind of see them work through some of these things. There is some Bugs Bunny level humor oh, yeah. throughout this film. Like this film is way funnier and like to your point, zanier than than I remember. Well, and it's in like a and, slapstick um, way too. Like it's it's correct. pretty much like that three That's what I mean by sort of Bunny. thing. Yeah. yeah, right, way over the top. And um, and and you know the, the creativity in the violence. Um, yes, again, going back to Willy's Wonderland, very repetitive, very downplayed. This everything is new, everything is fresh. You think you've seen it all. He's about to show you more to the bitter end. That final sequence is like 30 minutes and each death is a, a completely unique and different death, right? Like right. most of the time people are just like, oh, we're going to hack up bodies here. We're going to hack up bodies there. Like cleaver to the head, cleaver to the arm, cleaver to the like. No, no he's way. like every single death is going to be another film centerpiece death. It's yes. remarkable. It's almost too much to where you can't really appreciate some of the deaths in and of themselves because like it's so rapid fire coming at you in that, in that final 30 minutes uh, we'll, to, we'll to that end. That. And, and to your point, I watched that for those final 40 minutes uh, twice. As soon as I finished <laughs> the film, I went back and watched it again. Nice. And uh, it's fantastic. Cause I miss so much. They're throwing so much at you. Uh, the garden gnome in the head. Yes. And the, yes. The yes. Guts that come alive and like check themselves yep. out of the mirror. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. We're going to get to yeah. some of this stuff, but yeah, to your point uh every death stood out and uh was so so fun to watch i love this movie so much absolutely now to my point earlier it is really funny that peter jackson did feel like he 100 had to motivate absolutely everything so like everything is inspired by something and and everything's backstory is communicated but sometimes it's really funny like in this this instance so like right after the mom gets bit at the zoo the zookeeper comes up and he's like the origin story and he's like oh yeah that's the Sumatran rat monkey legend has it that a bunch of rats deboarded some ship and raped a bunch of monkeys and then like walks away <laughs> and I was like wow that's that's really the origin story rats raped monkeys and gave birth to this okay cool but again it's like dude props to giving us that most people would have just you know walked on by we don't need to explain that leave it up to the viewer's imagination peter jackson is like no no intraspecies sexual assault is why these are here matter of fact it's my commentary on the evils of sexual assault because look what happened <laughs> look where it got us here 
<laughs> Absolutely. So from there, he does take his mom home. He puts her to bed. Uh, Paquita comes over, says he wants to see her, says he says, no, I got to take care of mom. But he relents. I believe the insinuation is they sleep together. If they don't actually bang, they at least like, you know, physically sleep with one another, uh, you know, in each other's arms sort of thing. And so he's feeling good the next morning, goes into mom's and she is not doing well. She's sitting in her bedroom and she is falling apart now and she's breathing heavy. She's got this wound on her arm that's festering and pussy and it actually like squirts out giant pink slime. And, you know, he's like, oh, you know, Lionel, he's like, we got to, you know, you got to rest, blah, 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 except ding dong, knock on the door. He runs downstairs, turns out the representatives from this organization that she earlier was promoted to a position are there. To say, like, hey, you know, we got to go over your new position. She freaks out. She asks him, Lionel, that is, to, you know, get his her wardrobe ready. She goes to put on makeup and peels a section of her cheek off. At which point, Lionel rummages through a nearby cabinet, finds super glue, and tabs it on her <laughs> cheek, and, and puts it right back on. And so the next scene is that they have this... Very funny luncheon, and I actually oh, have so a good. clip of this for the listeners, Ryan. So let's go ahead and listen to the beginning of the scene real quick. Our main objective next year is to uh, try to get some of the younger generation involved in the league. That's why I'm so pleased that you're on the committee, Vera. Thank you, Nora. It's a great honor. Have you had any thoughts on the agenda for the annual meeting? Annual meeting. Annual meeting. What we need is another war. Dear. I hear Sir Edmund Hillary's planning an attempt on the South Pole. Mm-hmm. By tractor. Mm-hmm. Have some more beans, Mrs. Matheson. I'll have a few of those, lad. I really think we should be going, dear. Thank you, Lionel. What? No pudding? Only custard, I'm afraid. Custard? I haven't had a good custard in years. She never makes the stuff. Just the way I like it. Now, Ryan, that leaves on the no dessert. Right immediately after that, they bring custard (laughs) out. And man, it's pretty gross because we've got the mom's ear falling off in the custard. She's so zombied out that she ends up just eating it like crunching it, crunches and everything. And then Uh. her, her, her pussy open wound squirts into the gentleman's porridge and and he scoops it up and just oh it's so delicious to him as he shovels it into his mouth but 
it makes with his, his eyes closed. Yeah, yes. but it makes his it, wife like literally gonna vomit, so she has to excuse herself. And and that's to your point, a lot of that sort of slapsticky humor that we're talking about. Uh, this is the first scene too in the film that I started to notice the sound design. So music aside, the music is oh, you yeah. know suitable so and it carries the film for what it is, and it kind of sets in the background. But the sound design. The, the sound effects, rather, of the custard being eaten and the pus and the ear and all of the gurgling yeah. and oozing and slime sounds throughout the entire film uh, the zombies make and, and all of that is just so good. It makes you cringe. <laughs> and it, you're watching the silliest shit, but because it's like... Uh, you know, someone putting their hand in mac and cheese or something like it just sounds so <laughs> gross. By the way, in case you were wondering, that's what this sounds like. <clears throat> this has been mac and cheese Absolutely ASMR. Terrible. We we just lost half our <laughs> listeners. Carry on. <laughs> no, I'm just going to do this for three more minutes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so no. So after they uh, after they being the representatives leave, we, we come back to find that Paquita's dog has been eaten by mom. And there's a particularly graphic sequence where Lionel goes and and, and mom's got like some of, you know, some fur hanging out of her mouth and he pulls out an entire tail from within her throat to your point with all those gurgly mac and cheese sounds and it's just (laughs) and uh yeah it's just gross now she also bites the nurse who ends up turning into a zombie and and so that's kind of where we start right is we've got mom as the first one and then the caretaker gets bit by mom she's the second zombie now at first lionel's trying to pretty much manage the two i also love the point where he like grabs this wall decor and throws it at the zombie nurse's head and it straight like flies backward. And then you hear what you were talking about with it, just the horrible gurgling sounds and just all of this blood oozing from her neck. And he quickly gets them into the basement. He's not really entirely sure what to do at this point. So he decides that he's going to go and buy some tranquilizer in liquid form from a weird ass German doctor that Ryan, I don't know if you could understand half of what this dude was saying, but I sure couldn't. Nope, didn't care. I was all in. I understood the the characterization. I understood how I was supposed to look at this character. It's but it was like, okay, dude, first of all, heavy New Zealand accents first and foremost from everyone. Like these are definitely local Kiwis that are in this movie. So when you stack that guy trying to do a heavy comical German accent, it, it just kind of turns into a bunch of mush. But either way, uh we understand <laughs> that, you know, he's gotten the tranquilizer from this guy goes back home, is able to jam the syringe up mom's nose, as well as the nurses, I believe, which makes them fall asleep. And uh, (laughs) we do get a very funny scene later where it's the funeral. And by the way, we're introduced to the priest. We're going to talk to him in a minute. Awesome character, Father Magruder. But there's a scene where the they're preparing the body for the funeral and it's being embalmed and it just ends up like because it's a I, I, don't, I don't think it was too much embalming fluid I think it was some sort of reaction to her being a zombie but it just explodes in this like giant green orgy of liquid mess and it's everywhere <laughs> and the eyes bulge out and the skin bulges out and again, like it's one of those things where it would be a centerpiece of a different film, but here it's just like, oh yeah, no, that was just 20 seconds. We're moving on. And immediately after that funeral, 
we see the scene in the graveyard, right? So Lionel's going back to the graveyard basically to dig his mom's body up because he knows that she's undead, right? She's going to come back. And he ends up being accosted by these punks. And, you know, he's beat up on, but he gets saved by a priest. And at that, even though, you know, he only has five minutes in the entire movie, if that, but he makes those five minutes really, really count. I do, of course, have that clip for us to listen to. Let's go. Devil is amongst us. Stay back, boy. This calls for divine intervention. I kick ass for the Lord. Ryan, you hear it all the time in the sort of memorable quotes for genre films. I kick ass for the Lord. <laughs> it's a classic one, man. And, and for good reason. It's just so much fun. So much fun. And by the way, when he says he kicks ass for the Lord, he means that literally. This man is a kicking machine. He would, you know, put JCVD out of business super quick if he had the same phys- uh, physique. Yeah, he is. He is a kicking machine quite literally. He's doing some van damage for sure. <laughs> um, I, real quick, uh, you, you kind of skipped ahead here, but uh, were you not even going to mention that uh, the Undertaker's assistant was in fact P- uh, Shorn Peter Jackson, very young Peter Jackson? Oh, Did I you missed, notice that? No, I missed that one. Yeah, please. Absolutely, man. Go back and take a look. That was uh, <laughs> he's starting his own film. Fran Walsh is in this as well as an extra in the park. But uh, yeah, yeah, crazy uh, shaved Shorn. Uh, Young Peter Jackson wow. is the Undertaker's assistant. That's crazy. Yeah, and I do, I do. You can totally see it once it's pointed out too. Like I'm just, I'm thinking right now, and it's like, oh yeah, that, that character is totally him. So, but yeah, the uh, priest gets killed pretty immediately. Lionel takes him home. He's now got multiple zombies that he has to care for. Uh, this this uncle character shows up, right? He's this you know big fat dude who's gonna you know throw his weight around. He seems like he's some sort of business magnate. He's being very inappropriate with Paquita. And he basically tells Lionel that he wants in on the will, you know, and then all of a sudden we start hearing these like sex noises coming from the basement, which the insinuation is obviously that these two zombies are getting it on. Turns out to be fucking crazy. (laughs) Turns out to be the priest and the nurse. Now, let me tell you, Ryan, I I think this this priest character has a lot of pent up. uh, a lot of pent up juice because he bangs at least two or three zombies <laughs> over the course of the, the second half of this movie. Him specifically. Were they different zombies or was it the same one? Well, I, I know I for a tell. while it was the same one, but I think he got down with some other ones, too. OK, either way, either way, this priest is horny. He's very horny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, the uncle kind of thinks it's like some porn or something that he found and he ends up leaving like I'm gonna get you and Lionel goes back into the basement to find that yes these two zombies are indeed fornicating and end up very quickly and immediately giving birth to a baby zombie and man again that's that's what I'm here for that's exactly what I'm here for I want to see zombie babies I want to see chicks with you know get thrown on light fixtures and have their faces light on fire I, I want their you know undead uh, heads to be flapping up and down with just crazy blood and gurgle effects and 
You know, it's just it's this stuff movie like is that cranked to eleven. Yeah, and he keeps finding new ways to best himself. Like just when you think you've seen it all, you have not, and it's so fun. Like right to the bitter end with the zombie mom climax at the on the roof, which we'll get to. But uh, and that's Jesus. I mean, we're we're very quickly getting to the forty minute finale uh, of this film. Uh, but yeah. Holy shit. And the baby, the zombie baby, uh, as I've got him referenced in my notes here, uh, sometimes is a puppet. Sometimes it's a yeah. miniature or a doll of some kind. Sometimes it's a full grown person. In a <laughs> it really costume, is. Shot in force perspective. It's like his fucking giant nuts. fucking baby all of a sudden. It'll just be like in someone's arms. And then the next shot, it's like towering over children. And I think maybe that was yeah. him like still experimenting with his force perspective. He's like he hadn't quite correct. nailed it That's yet. That's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. yeah. Which is so fun to see. Yeah. No full well where this is headed in just a few years you know with the hobbit yeah so uh but he's trying stuff and i love to see that with young filmmakers that he had found this safe space over new zealand got three million dollars to just throw a bunch of shit at the wall to see what stuck uh and the the, the delightful answer is most of it um, <laughs> absolutely I mean, even and the and sticky terrible it stuff, is it literally sticks to the walls and everywhere <laughs> man <laughs> right. and then there's that very funny scene of him where after the baby's born he's like well you know what should i do with it well, naturally, you take it to the park for a nice day out. And so we get <laughs> we get a very funny sort of like Benny Hill type comedy scene, right, where he's trying to entertain this zombie baby taking inspiration from like the local moms that are out with their real babies. But it's just a terror and it's trying to like attack and eat the other babies. So he's got to like wrestle it and, you know, he's taking it and shaking it and banging its head up against the uh, playground equipment to the horrified dismay of all the different moms there. He ends up jamming it in a sack and like slamming it against the ground a couple times and walking off. And so Bugs Bunny, man. (laughs) This is so Bugs Bunny, the level of humor. And it is a little Benny Hill. You're absolutely right. A little chasing around and uh, yakety sax playing and uh, the whole bit. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's really way over the top. And it's really one of very few horror comedies to really hit the mark. Like like you, you mentioned, you know, both of us were kind of disappointed by Willie's Wonderland in that respect. And it's a hard thing to do. I mean, first and foremost, it really comedy itself is incredibly difficult. I think it's, it's probably the hardest genre to nail effectively. Right. That's why. That's why there's just not that many funny movies, historically speaking. Um, and even the funniest movies have jokes fall flat. And, and then horror is probably a little bit easier to do, but also not really this type of horror, right? Because this is sort of like creature feature horror. And, you know, I think right. that slasher horror, for example, like it's really cheap. It's really easy to do. Uh, you know, you throw a mask on someone and then, you know, you just underlight your setting and you're good to go. But stuff like this where you actually have to come up with prosthetics and makeup effects and gore effects and creature feature uh, creature effects and all these different things. It's it, you know, that's kind of hard to do. And then so when you jam those things together, like I can really t- t- to me, there's really like three all-time classic examples of, of the hor- style of horror comedy that we're talking about. This would be one of them. And then the only other two I could come up with that really hit the mark in the exact perfect fashion are Evil Dead 2, first of all, which is which is a significantly better film than the first one. First one I do love, but the, you know, you it's kind of one of those things where you know, you you take into account that it's the first, but Evil Dead 2 took that formula and perfected it. And then Gremlins. And you can even argue Gremlins 2. I do think Gremlins 2 is a brilliant film, but at least the first Gremlins. So, you know, Dead Alive, Evil Dead 2, Gremlins kind of represent the holy trinity, if you will, of horror comedy, the way that I see it. No, I, I have nothing to add. That's uh, fantastic. I think that um, 
you know, maybe because uh, I was trying to break down what makes the perfect recipe, like what you're talking about and how you walk that fine line. And it sure seemed like he let Richard Taylor do all the gore and all the effects and all of that. And then he kind of leaned into his style of humor a little bit um, and went, you know, in that direction and had the actors overplay everything and kind of trumped up the performances. And, and uh, so that when these two things collided, uh, you had these horrific things happening in a very comedic way. Uh, but I, I really I can't say enough about Richard Taylor's involvement and how important that probably was at the time to make to pull all this off. You know what I'm saying? Like, I do. Yeah, uh, because otherwise, uh, you know, without. Uh, the over-the-top schlocky horror and all the guts and everything, you know, uh, it would have been hard to play into the, you know, some of the... And I think that's true with Gremlins. I think you're absolutely true, uh, right with that. I think that, uh, you know, the creature effects, um, you know, being so terrible, but then having them do comedic things, you know, in a comedic way and with the music playing and all the sound effects and, and you know, cartoonish behaviors... Um, you know, if you just watched this and played a different soundtrack or, or had different responses, I think it would have been, you know, a straight ahead horror. But yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. Joe Dante has the gremlins, you know, do a, a I'm so excited 80s workout routine before <laughs> right. they end up watching Absolutely. Snow White as a collective and singing hi ho, hi ho. Like that's silly. <laughs> and then he would take that to like the nth degree with gremlins, too, which is just an out and out like live action cartoon so much so that he decided to open the film with a uniquely done Looney Tunes cartoon featuring Bugs and Daffy just let like yes this is a cartoon and that's so first of all let's acknowledge that all of the humor in all three of these films is way over the top and cartoonish so there would seem to be an element of that contributing to the success of that formula right and i mean you're really talking i mean comedy in and of itself unless you're kind of going for one of those you know subtle you know quote unquote intelligent comedies right but for the most part like you know you watch will ferrell you watch three three stooges groucho marx whatever you know it tends to be over the top very loud very big motions and and things of that nature and horror is the same way right so i think it's just like look let's crank both of these up to 11 and mash them together and turn it into a 13 right <laughs> love it yeah I, I wish there was more of this i don't know uh how to get more of this out of people or if there's a market for it anymore everything's got to be so you know such a spectacle uh yeah. now if you're gonna you know jump in that arena um or you know uh, you know you kind of uh, fall flat you know maybe the the humor isn't quite landing or whatnot it's hard to find that perfect marriage of something that makes me laugh and cringe at the same time and um so when when you see a movie like this it really does stand out and and uh and seeing it at such a young age um as i did you know this had a, such an impact on me and, and really set the bar for me in a similar way is like what you're saying like gremlins or uh or evil dead uh, Army of Darkness, you know, that whole series was uh, very much in that vein as well. Yeah. Now, there's another aspect that I think contributes greatly to the overall success of these films, and it can tend to be overrated or rather underrated. Excuse me. And that is overlooked is what I meant to say. Overlooked, underrated. Scratch that reverse it. Thanks. And that's the acting, Ryan. And, you know, it, it's always been a thing, historically speaking, just with film in general, Comedy actors have never been given the same respect as dramatic actors. You know, this is why you will never see a comedic actor nominated for a broad comedy for an Academy Award for for Best Actor. And yet, 
you could argue that someone could do a Sean Penn style of performance, someone else that is, much easier than they could do a Jim Carrey performance or a Robin Williams performance, you know? So obviously that's a separate discussion, but I do think in general, you know, we, we, we don't give, well, Bruce Campbell in particular is kind of, he's definitely gotten his credit, at least in the, the, the B scene and, you know, all of that. But, uh, someone like, you know, I don't even know the actor's name in this, but he did a really good job because one of the things in it that you have to be aware of is like some of this material is really dark. And if you play into it too strongly, the way that a dramatic actor would, that's not going to be good for the audience and that's not going to be good for the tone. So, you know, when he goes into the stuff, Peter Jackson, that is about Lionel's character losing his dad and then, you know, the reveal at the end with what happens there. Uh, you know, if, if if he was to just, you know, go all in and, you know, give us a, uh, uh, you know, like a your friends and neighbors style four minute monologue from Jason Patrick where he just went really into it. Like we probably would feel not as joyous. Right. We, we wouldn't be having as good a time. It was like, oh, shit, this kind of just went a little serious. So I think that the actors, by keeping it kind of a little bit goofy, a little bit over the top, really leaning into the physicality of the performances um, and going to certain emotions, but but stopping short of like really digging into them. I think it's a really, really strong choice. And I think that that probably helps keep that atmosphere light. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Even so much as how it's shot, too, with the lighting and and things that uh, are constant reminders, I think, subconsciously that not to take any of this seriously, you know, a lot of extreme colors you know, like you were saying earlier, the pinks and the yellows and the purples and, and all of that kind of lend itself well to making it feel a little schlocky or taking you out of it just enough that those hard moments, like what you're talking about, don't feel so hard. They're, they're pulling the punches and you follow those things very succinctly with something way over the top bonkers. So, you know, it's, Oh, my, my father died and it's oh so sad. And then, you know, but that line might be delivered um, just as an example on his way to the basement to go check on his mother or something, you know, where you're about to see this, the most absurd thing in the world, you know, so it's wrapped in, in this package, whether it's, you know, with cinematography or, or the, to the performances and everything. Absolutely. But also the set and setting of where these things happen and how it gets delivered and what you follow it by and how it's shot. Um, you know, I look at such tremendous filmmakers, uh, not that Pete Jackson isn't, uh, but, you know, I think it goes without saying that uh, Edgar Wright and, and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and their whole camp had to have been um, influenced by by this for movies like Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz or any of their subsequent at World's End or any of that. Um, the low angles, uh, extreme low angles looking up. And, uh, you know, that's also a great way to shoot on a budget because you're not seeing what's behind the person or, or any of the blood being thrown. Um, yeah, it's uh, a lot of it, extreme, extreme cinematography. So it's not a slow, mellow push in uh, with some soft music playing. It's, you know, the, the delivery uh, of some of this visually is also kind of uh, softening the blow as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. And so from there, we get this really nice setup where the uncle shows back up to the house and he's like, Lionel, I'm going to call the police and report this as a murder if you don't let me in on the will. And he's like, I'll do you one better. I'll give you the house. The uncle's like, cool, that works for me. And then immediately throws a giant house party (laughs) with these four zombies trapped in the basement 
And now there's literally hundreds of people in this huge mansion. And it's just such a clever setup for a way to just get it like, you know, so many people in there really, really quickly. And it fits with the character. Again, just speaking to that, how well motivated everything is in this film. Now there's a bunch of drinking and dancing going on. Drunk guy opens up the basement with where obviously the zombies are. And, you know, Paquita is outside. She's having a stroll with this doctor because she's kind of left Lionel for the time being, at least. She sees there's a party. She leaves the doctor, not into him anymore. Goes inside, wanders into the basement. She's attacked by one of the zombies, but Lionel shows up and cleaves him in the head. And, you know, he's struggling with having to kill his mom. Paquita ends up being like, you know, that's not your mom. You've really got to kill her. He's like, okay, I know what I have to do. And so she calls to his attention the fact that there's poison, much, you know, in the same fashion as the tranquilizer. There's a big jar, amber jar of poison. And so he's like, all right, yeah, you know, let's poison. Let's put an end to this. It's about to get bad with all those people up there. So he does so. And then record scratch afterwards turns the label around to find that the poison is actually animal stimulant. And so things are about to get nuts. The zombies literally bust (laughs) through the ground. They're super aggro. Uh, There was some really cool lighting effects. Like a lot of this takes place during the day. So there's not really an opportunity for a lot of those sort of creepy color gels and stuff. But in the basement and in the graveyard, we do get some of that effective colored lighting. Always looks really nice. And, you know, the drunk guy opens up the basement. The aggro zombies are released. And that's where all the mayhem truly begins. And there's still 30 minutes left, kiddos. There's a lot of movie here left. And uh, again, you know, we won't. Yeah, we're not going to, you know, I don't want to spend the next however long it takes to like sit here and describe each of the creative deaths in graphic detail. But suffice to say, there's a lot of really cool deaths that we're going to have to skip over right now that uh, again, you know, would be centerpieces in other films, you know, parts where like the guy gets dragged through, I think it's like the furnace or the wall or whatever. And it like scrapes his legs off. And then he's got like just his bones exposed. And then, then that same lower <laughs> torso that. shows up later in the hallway, just running down as like skeletons. Right. Like there's so many different moments. Well, and that's like the thing that. too, is there's a lot of uh, revisiting some of these things. So you'll see one thing happen. And then like, you know, a few minutes later, you'll revisit, like you'll see that exact same zombie and the same you know condition and another thing will happen to him and another thing will happen a few minutes later and so uh you're almost following all these little mini plot lines of all these little murders and kills as it's going along because like i was saying earlier like someone's guts come to life at one yeah point absolutely are ripped out in one scene and then in the next scene now they're a, a, a formidable foe not only that but it they become sentient and then it like has right. this moment where point. it where it fawns over itself in the mirror and we get like that little sweet music. And then there's the scene (laughs) later where Lionel finally goes to smash it and it like puts its fleshy palms together and it's like, no, no. And so like they just infuse these (laughs) random hilarious personalities, uh, you know, that juxtapose the, the thing that they are. Yeah. But it's terrifying the things that are. I mean, the, the, to, I don't know about terrifying. It's gross and it's it's well, kind of. I mean, but the, it's the scene really... you were just describing, where the aggro zombies come upstairs and they and they bust the door down, and they that guy that's opening the door to go down there, uh, he gets trapped under the door. And the very first thing we see is the aggro zombies like shredding through his chest with their hands, yeah. grabbing his rib cage and <laughs> unseating his rib cage from his body and pulling it out while he's screaming into camera horrifically. Now. 
that played out any other way is terrifying and would be a horror scene. But with the music and, and the, the, uh, the, the way that all plays out in the scene, it's, it's kicking off a very funny, uh, situation in a very terrifying way. And it's, it's really just brilliant the way it's all pulled together. Um, so schlocky. You've got the, the zombie back again. You've got slippery blood. Yeah, uh, that was Lionel's trying to escape a zombie horde and his feet, little feet just won't get going. Cause he's like sliding on, on blood like again, very thing. a la Looney Tunes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he's got to like uh, lily pad himself through zombie parts. He absolutely uh, does. I love that. He ends up using like dismembered body parts as stepping stones to basically <laughs> hop <laughs> right. over this like river of blood that's going on to be able to escape. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And then uh... you got the priest <laughs> fucking again uh, and he ends up impaling himself on a on a rake or something so that he can get close to a another zombie woman so that he can have sex on the floor. I mean, it's just bananas. All these little uh, things that are going on. And every, just when you think you've seen it all, they're throwing more at you and more at you. And every single, you would think after 30 to 40 minutes. um, And I hate keep, you know, to keep uh, harping on this, but you really would think that you'd be bored or you'd be done with it. Uh, but he never repeats the, himself. And, like, okay. and that's the thing is he keeps never. it fresh and he keeps it interesting and he keeps evolving and raising the stakes and giving you new deaths. Again, it's not just like, you know, oh, here's seven different, uh, you know, scenes of him shooting a zombie and here's 12 different shots of him stabbing a zombie. Like right. each and every death for the most part is unique. And when it's not, there's still a unique layer added onto that. So like I'm thinking right now, for example, of there's a really cool shot that the uncle actually gets, uh, who's who's kind of something of a villain in, in the movie. But it's the scene where it's like if it's not an out and out time lapse, it's at least heavily sped up. And it's just sort of a medium shot looking up at him. And he's got two cleavers in either, either hand. And there's a so giant good. horde attacking him. And he just... He just has both hands just pumping like crazy and it's sped up time lapse. And so and and after like, you know, 12, 10 seconds of like, like crazy sped up stuff, it like pulls back to reveal that like he's just standing in front of this literal mountain of zombie body parts. And he gets this very cool hero shot where he lights a cigarette as he does so and also uses this little weird asthma inhaler thing. Uh, It's like a manual inhaler or something. But yeah. And so there's just like, again, so creative, you know, you would, most people would just be happy, you know, show the dude's face and then, you know, cut to mountain of body parts. But, you know, he's, it's like Peter Jackson's always being like, how can we extract just a little more out of this? Ah, I know time lapse. And, and that's where the enjoyment level that's it's, it's the love. It's the passion for the craft. It's the constantly saying, how can I make this better? How can I make this more entertaining? You know, not being not being lazy, you know, constantly because I mean, you can't imagine he just came up with each of these things right off the top of his head improv style. Right. I'm sure some things came no. quickly, but yeah, I mean, you know, we I mean, we write for the sketches and elsewhere like it, it, it can sometimes take a while to come up with even one creative death. So. I mean, and he did have two other writers and, you know, you have to imagine they definitely helped out and maybe they were all like minded and the three of them just sort of fed off each other and were able to get this really nice groove in the writer's room. Um, But yeah, it's 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 really it's really something. And Ryan, there's also one other. So, again, like I said, I don't want to spend, you know, the next however long just listing off all the different deaths. But there's one sequence that I want to go in that I think really illustrates the filmmaking prowess on display here, as well as the 
elements of the script that work best and, and, and keep things moving along. Again, what I was talking before about action begetting action. So it's the scene where basically the zombie baby kind of faces Paquita a little bit, okay? And I'm just going to sort of list each thing here as it goes in terms of the shot sequencing, okay? So we start off, a zombie baby bites Rita, I believe it is. It's not Rita, it's someone else. It infects her. That character in terms kicks the baby across the kitchen, at which point it hits the wall and bounces back. As it comes across, Paquita has a frying pan. The baby's face hits the frying pan, Looney Tunes style, and lands on on top of a blade in a food processor. Paquita goes over. She's going to kill the baby, but then recognizes it's a baby. She hesitates, after which point the baby vomits on her. Now, at this point, that motivates her to be like, nah, fuck this baby, he's going to die. And so she starts the food process. It starts spinning up. She looks down. Baby's not there. Looks up. Baby is hanging from a light fixture. Now, the light fixture immediately starts to creak and loosen, tears from the ceiling, falls down. Baby lands on top of the food processor blade, and Paquita starts it up. The blade starts spinning, but because the baby's not, like, on the side of it, it actually spins him up and out, at which point Paquita punches it when it's in the air, and it goes flying through the window, at which point it hits the uncle who is outside fighting off a horde of zombies, hits him in the balls. Now, the baby drops to the <laughs> ground. When it, when it hits the uncle in the balls, he keels over. The toupee falls off his head, lands on the baby's head. He comes to, he's got a pair of garden shears. He goes to attack the baby, but just gets the toupee. And the baby runs away, at which point the uncle is attacked by a group of zombies. And he picks up a lawn gnome that is on the ground and jams it into a decapitated zombie to where now the decapitated Decapitated zombie's head is the lawn gnome. It turns the camera and the uncle runs away. That is three minutes consecutive. That's fucking filmmaking right there, bro. Yeah, absolutely. One thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next, and uh, it all ties together. And like I said, you revisit these zombies back and forth, so they're not just fodder like they are in so many other films where every zombie is just a generic zombie and you're just mowing through them, no pun intended. Uh, the, each of these you recognize as you go through. Because now, to your point, now you've got Garden Gnome Zombie, <laughs> who shows up later in the film a couple of times and attacks people. So, uh, you, you know, it, it brings you in and makes all these people kind of recognizable. I also like that this scene took place at the uh, the house party. Yeah. To your point earlier, um, that made it a containable situation so that you could revisit some of these zombies. You can uh, play with some lighting. You could play with some scenes. It's not just like um, a an escape from a city or something where you've got you know zombies chasing you or what have you. To put it all in one house, um, you know, and have so much going on uh, in the different rooms and things, you can now bounce around and have different things affect other things, and and you create this domino effect of story and plot and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and characterization and all of it. and, and uh, But yeah, the frying pan with the face indenting in it uh, with the zombie <laughs> baby and all that. So looney tunes. Absolutely. Man. I love this shit. <laughs> so I think there's really, you know, just two scenes that we have to sort of address uh, before we officially wrap the discussion up. The first one is the lawnmower scene. We talked about it earlier with the foreshadowing, and that's basically a scene where Lionel literally has a lawnmower and literally mows down 
dozens of zombies just in a row. And uh, it's when, you know, Paquita and Rita are being swarmed. They're about to be, you know, attacked. It doesn't look good. And then Dumbledore swing open suddenly. Hero shot. Lionel standing there with his lawnmower says, party's over. And then starts up the mower <laughs> and literally mows through them in just an orgy of viscera and gore and pink slime oh, so and good. red blood and just and this is this right here. I, it earned it before, but this is where it really cements its status as the goriest film of all time. 100%. Right. And it's also when we get that great shot that we said was was cut from the American version but is in the international version of the baby's hands going through the inside of Rita's cheeks and literally breaking her face apart revealing that the baby is inside of her face. It's it's so well done. You just you love to see it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they were constantly challenging each other as yes. uh, filmmakers, as a filmmaking team. Um, uh, Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson and, and Richard Taylor and all these people that have worked together throughout the years to constantly one up each other or impress the other person. Um, it, and it makes for a lot of fun when it's not just a single filmmaker's vision, uh, you know, and, and, and you have this collaborative effort. Uh, you could really see where you know, the screenwriting and the directing and the performances and the acting and the gore and the creature effects and the music and all of it is just coming together in this 40 minute sequence uh, so harmoniously. Um, and every time you see something, uh, a lesser filmmaker could have stopped there. A lesser filmmaker could have got had Rita killed in a much less cool way than the baby literally ripping through her face. Yeah. Um, there is a reaction shot earlier on where someone's a woman is screaming based on the death and the horrific uh, things that are going on around her. And as just as she puts her hands on her face to scream over her mouth, uh, a zombie punches through the back of her head <laughs> yeah. and you see the fist come right at camera. It's always this one upping, you know, how do we make this? How do we take this one step further? Yeah. And then someone else says, how do we take it two steps further? And so on. And they're just, and it makes it so much fun for the, for the viewer to just sit back and let, let all that happen. So much so that, again, uh, and I said this earlier, I had to go back and, I, I mean, I read back and rewatch the whole thing twice. It was so much fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, of course, we're not done yet because we've still got, as Lionel even says, dear old mom, right? And, uh, you know, this film's not <laughs> over until mom gets handled and... She is enormous. <laughs> oh, and how she handled the uncle though was just fucking oh, yeah. great with the uh, especially with that earlier tap, shot tap, tap too. Yeah, shoulder. exactly. Shoulder. The giant claws, nails, whatever. Uh, that was that yep. was brilliant. So yeah, when she reveals herself, she busts through the window. She's a size of a small house herself. And, you know, very grotesque. It kind of, uh, I don't know if you felt the same way, but definitely got uh, The Thing vibes. Like that one uh, that one monster from John Carpenter's oh, yeah. The Thing. Uh, right. Sort of hunched over. Yep. Especially the when the uncle gets uh, the spine ripped yeah, out exactly. and all that with the head on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. First thing I thought of. 100%. And, you know, so she's going to, this is going to set up sort of a classic rooftop showdown where, you know, Lionel is finally going to stand up to his, his mom. And I actually do have a clip of that to go out on here. So uh, let's hear that real quick before we wrap this up. Gotcha! 
I love you like your mother. So yeah, so we do get that reveal where, you know, the mom ended up killing the dad and the mistress. Lionel was mistaken. You know, he didn't drown trying to save him all along. He finally challenges her on this. And then she ends up actually, because she's so small or so large, rather, excuse me, she ends up like smashing the top of the house and, and sending uh, Lionel to his feet and sliding down into a very Videodrome style uh, vagina belly that kind of opens up a little bit and swallows him whole. Back to the womb. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, uh, <laughs> sort of completing the circle. Uh, but this time, which, you know, we really didn't talk too much about the talisman, but, you know, this sort of symbol of this moon, you know, halfway through, I think the grandma, who's the kind of the tarot reader. So, yeah, I didn't really get the pertinence of that at all. Uh, I, I mean, in the end, he didn't need it for anything. It didn't have any mystical powers. He was given this talisman, um, you know, by Paquita and her um, kind of a... Uh, gypsy for lack of a better word uh you know mother you know, very much in the same vein as the um uh the weird lady from uh Thinner? was it tangina or something from poltergeist ah. you know kind of had a weird uh psychic vibe yeah. to her or something she was doing tarot cards in the beginning we kind of left all that part out but i didn't really see that aside from motivating paquita to fall in love with lionel uh and and signifying that she was supposed to be end up with this person and he was going to be a hero in the foreshadowing in the beginning of the film i didn't really see any payoff for the talisman or why that existed did you i guess probably it was just to set up this final scene because that's what he ends up using to hack out of his mom's stomach right so she swallows him and then he ends up taking the talisman which has its like pointed end because it's the symbol of the star right. moon or whatever and but then that he could uses have been that like it didn't really have any yeah, power you know anything. i i look you know they probably Probably just kind of threw it in there. It's probably one of those things where they're like, eh, guys, is the talisman soup? Yeah, so if there is one aspect out of thousands of aspects of this film that isn't 100% motivated, it would be this yeah. talisman. So let's go ahead and acknowledge that. It just seemed that. like they were trying to get a MacGuffin out of it. Yeah. Like, uh, we need a MacGuffin. Probably just one of those cases and... of, of just adding one too many things in at the end, right? Into your yeah. soup. It's like, go ahead and, and leave the celery out of there. We don't, we don't, out, we don't need know? that. You got all this other good stuff in here. Just leave that celery out. Yeah. Because throughout this zombie battle, he keeps re-encountering this talisman that's being kicked around and, you know, he keeps dropping it and whatnot. And he keeps having to fight his way back to the talisman as if it was going to be this, again, this MacGuffin or, or have this big uh, payoff at the end. And it really didn't, aside from the physicality of having a pointy end, <laughs> he could dig out of his mother's belly. But uh, that, again, that could have been a stick or, a, you know, anything. That, really. that, that's Whatever. absolutely true. So, but yeah, you if know, that's the worst thing you're going to dump on me in this whole film. Right? Fuck it. Like I'm all about yeah, it. Like, absolutely. That's fine. I'm okay. with Absolutely. It. So, you know, he's able to, uh, you know, finally kill his mom that way and saves Paquita, who's dangling on the roof through this whole thing and ends up, you know, ziplining down and uh, you know is able to save the day and they kiss with the house ablaze behind them and the movie just immediately ends as it should and that is dead alive slash brain dead so much fun Ryan Love hit it. us up with your three adjectives uh these come as no surprise <laughs> I thought this was uh First and foremost, fun. It was a fun film. I should watch this weekly. I don't know why it took me so long to watch this again. God bless this podcast for bringing these films to my doorstep. Uh, inventive. Again, um, you see a lot of 
early inklings of, you know, Peter Jackson and, and Fran Walsh and Richard Taylor and all these people kind of working it out. Um, I don't know if Philippa Boyens was in that group at that time. She helped write Lord of the Rings and Heavenly Creatures and stuff back. But uh, regardless, you see this filmmaking crew all pulling together and, and inventing new ways uh, or, or you know, finding old ways even of uh, making things fun and, and telling us a pretty simple story uh, all in all. I mean, like I said earlier, uh, the summaries that you pull up online, whether it's Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb, they're all just like a sentence or two. So uh, the, the storyline itself, you know, we could have gotten through this podcast in 10 minutes, but it's all of the fluff and, and the way that they tell it. Um, so inventive. And then uh, third is mandatory, man. This should be mandatory viewing for every <laughs> aspiring filmmaker, every film nerd, every, you know, person that listens to this podcast. If you're out there, there are very few movies that I would say you have to go see this. And this is one of them. This is so fantastic and a lot of fun. If you watch this and don't like it, I really, really would like to hear why I do get that. It's a little dated, the practical effects, but uh, if you don't mind some schlocky shit and you like things like, you know, gremlins and, and the movies we've discussed, uh, please go watch this. Uh, I can't recommend this enough. How about you, Jason? Absolutely, man. So, you know, pretty much, like you said, nothing that we're not going to expect here for my three adjectives. My first is zany, just really capturing that over the top. Perfect. Yeah. Mood that we talked about. Absolutely. For my second one, I went with uh, the old hyphen of uh, blood soaked, uh, which is just sort of another way of saying gory. But yeah, needless to say, I mean, if your tolerance for gore and caro syrup and, you know, blood is 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 low. Do not watch this movie. Uh, that's the entire reason that you're here for this. There's a ton of pink slime and viscera and like and 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 it's not look when you're watching it, it's not 100 percent realistic. Right. I mean, the, the whole thing is so over the top. But if you are sensitive right. to, for example, like some people are really sensitive to sounds, you know, so even just like the gurgling sounds that you talked about, like that might be something that sets someone over the edge. But. Either way, I know our audience and our audience is going to eat this shit up with a spoon. So the like third custard. adjective, <laughs> like pussy custard. <laughs> and uh, the third <laughs> adjective I have is 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 not a real word, but it should be carnivalistic. I thought this was just an absolute fun house ride. You know, that was when I was watching this, it was like, oh, man, dude, if they could literally even just take two minutes of this film and make some interactive funhouse type experience where you just go through and all the shit happens around you. Like, man, so I've got zany, I got blood soaked and I got carnivalistic Ryan. It's time to formalize a grade rating. What do you have? I'm giving this one an a minus. Um, Oh yeah. I mean, Again, you got to save those A pluses uh, for the ones that are just film classics to me. Um, but for what this is and, and the genre and everything that they're packaging up for me, uh, this is about the best it could be for me. And just because I'm giving it a uh, knocking it down just a little bit, maybe it's just on uh, no pun intended execution, um, <laughs> you know, based on the some of the dated effects or, you know, the zombie being a you know real person and a doll. You know, there's some like things that happen that are just a little too schlocky for me to give this, like, you know, put this on par with <laughs> huge Oscar winners or, or something, you know, like uh, way over the top. That's just perfectly done. But, uh, and the music, uh, you know, was a little lackluster. There's some, some missteps, but uh, overall 
this was a fun romp, and um, yeah, A minus. How about you? Nice. Ray? I mean, that's solid. But I got to admit, Ryan, I totally thought you were you were gonna give this the full the full A or A plus, man. You're a you're you know what? You're a pretty tough critic, dude. I would love to actually go back through season one and like average our scores out. I, I, w- I would put money <laughs> that your average score of the 30 films we looked at in season one is lower than the average of my scores. Uh, if anybody listening enjoys our show enough to actually look into that, hit us up. We will custom make you a T-shirt or do some cool shit for you. So, Ryan, I mean, I you know, I saved my perfect ratings for, for, for the, the perfect experiences. And even if this wasn't a perfect film, it was a perfect experience. So... Full five stars out of five stars for your boy Jason for Dead Alive slash awesome. Brain Dead. Love it. Uh, I just I, I support this I, shit. I, I loved it. I would watch it again right now. Right, like part of, even just after even even after talking about it right now, I kind of want to go back and rewatch it. Uh, we just watched it, so uh, yeah, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it my full five right up there with I think uh, the Lighthouse, Bowfinger, and. Diving Bell. I think I gave five to Diving Bell as well. Okay. So, did we not do that for uh, Portrait? No, I, didn't. I think I gave Portrait a pretty high rating. I gave. I think I gave it four and a half. I don't think either of us gave it. Five, okay, but either way. So, I mean, I get what you're saying about. I like. I really like what you're saying about uh, grading the experience versus necessarily the film itself. So, uh, you know, in that regard, maybe I. I'd go up to an A. I know you have me really second guessing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a cure now. Damn it. Oh well. A minus it is. A minus it is. You know. I'm sure he'll get by. Just sticking with it, man. You know, stick to your guns, homie. That's what. That's that's why you're here. <laughs> um, everybody listening, of course, we are so thankful that you liked us enough the first time around with season one to come and join us for season two. We really appreciate it. We have experienced some really nice growth, and we're getting some really good feedback from you guys. So, we really encourage you to actually reach out to us you know that's the one thing if anything that we would like to see more of is we really don't get a ton of interfacing with you guys so uh we're actually some super cool guys we don't bite we won't uh you're free to you're free to tell us to you know go whatever or you can say that you like our show doesn't matter point is you can be complimentary you can talk shit doesn't matter we just want to hear from you so a couple different ways to get at us. You can go ahead and reach out on Twitter, which is probably the quickest way to get a response. That's at Esoterica Cinema. We're also on Instagram. Have a really lovely page over there. That's also at Esoterica Cinema. And then, of course, you can write to us. And uh, if you're one of those old school people that doesn't like being limited to characters, or if you're enjoying a really solid chocolate chip muffin or maybe a blueberry muffin and you're looking around and you're looking for someone to share just how good that muffin is and there's nobody you can you can reach out to us on the old email uh we do enjoy all muffin related inquiries that's esoterica cinema at gmail.com maybe you're not into muffins and maybe you're into movies and that's why you're listening to us in the first place in which case yeah go ahead and reach out to us tell us about movies that you want to hear us do we can put it on our list which we'll talk about in a minute uh tell us what you think about the show what you think about the comedy sketches again just go ahead and uh reach out and maybe if you got something interesting to say, we'll uh, even read it on the air here if you're the type that likes that. So now, Ryan, there is one other thing that I want to talk about. OK, now, I, I feel like a lot of people kind of missed out on the fact that the way that we select our films. Right. And now we don't just pick these films at random. We actually have what we call a master list. OK, now to everybody listening, this master list has 200 films on it. OK. And in a given season, we look at 30, which means that 15% of this list is going to be selected. 
We don't know what those films are. If you've listened to the show all the way through before, you know that at the end of the episodes, we actually do a random movie selection with a random number generator and that dictates what we're going to watch. Now, yes, we do pick the movies that go on the master list, but we don't select which of those we're going to look at for a given episode. So a couple things that we want to do is we really would like for you guys to go ahead and see this list so that you can kind of know, oh, wow, these are the 200 films that they're going to be pulling from. And maybe you have some favorites on that list. Maybe you have something that, you know, you haven't seen and you're really hoping that we pull it. And so we want you to be able to follow along. So what we did is we actually went and got ourselves a website. Yeah, trying to legitimize ourselves a little bit. Uh, it's probably, you know, it's not really that uh, developed yet. You know, it's still kind of in its early stages, but we figured that would be the easiest and best way to share this list with you. So if you go to esotericacinema.com, you will find right there on the front page uh, the, a list of the movies as well as hopefully we can get some sort of, uh, hopefully if you're looking at it, there is a downloadable PDF or something we were able to get going on that. Um, but yeah, but we would really like for you guys to know the films that are in discussion and then moving forward, you can recommend movies for us to add to that list that we will consider at the end of season two, we're going to go ahead and we're going to add another 30 films to that master list to replace the ones that we looked at for season two. And if you guys give us some, we'll be happy to put them on there. So again, you can reach out to any of the socials, any of the emails and let us know some of the films that you would like for us to put on that list that maybe... You know, if fortune goes in your direction, we'll end up looking at for season three. So, Ryan, with that said, it is time to go ahead and pull this random film from our master list. Let's do it. Yep. Now, uh, the one thing that I want to remind everybody is that we did obviously look at Dead Alive. That is 32 on the list. So we're going to go ahead and mark out 32, leaving another 199 films to select from. So we go over here to our random number generator and we're going to go ahead and generate a number. That number that we get today is 188. So we come to our list and we go to 188 of 200. Oh wow, I have actually not seen this one, Ryan. I've always wanted to. I mean, all these films we've wanted to see or we have seen. Under the Skin. You familiar with that one? I am. Have you seen it? Yes. I have, yes. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, I, 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 we don't want to necessarily spoil anything. I actually haven't seen this one at all, so it'll be interesting to look at. And uh, this is the one with uh, Scarlett Johansson, right? It is. Yep. Uh, this one, um, I'm really looking forward to getting back to this and seeing how I appreciate this under a microscope. I think this is the perfect film for this show. Nice. Uh, because I watched it for entertainment value, of which... I did not care for it at all. Interesting. So, yeah, the whole thing was just very, very obscure and strange. Um, this is uh, by John Glazier, the director of Sexy Beast. Uh, he's also done a bunch of music videos for people like Radiohead and Massive Attack. Um, so it's very visually stunning. Uh, but from and, and the performances were good. I remember the music being kind of haunting. I remember not giving a shit about anything that was going on. <laughs> I remember being very repetitive. Um, and just kind of like, it's very slow and very deliberate. Okay. So prepare yourself. Uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and if I remember correctly, I believe it's on Netflix. Um, so you may be able to double check that it might be included with one of your subscription packages sure. already. Um, so yeah. So 
Once again, everybody, uh, we really appreciate you hanging out with us. Again, if you haven't yet, go to the website, get that list, look at the films that are on there. I'm sure there's going to be at least a handful that you're excited about. As usual, we've got a strong, varied representation of all sorts of different films, from old school gangster classics to modern romances to... 90s anime, everything in between, right? We've got just a solid representation of what we call the multiverse of cinema, right? So definitely go check out that list and hit us up. Let us know what you want to see on there for season three. In the meantime, we will be back next week with a look at the film Under the Skin. Thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Esoterica Cinema. Welcome to another edition of Homeseekers New Zealand. This week, we are joined by the Maitlands, Randall and Courtney. Randall made his fortune investing in meme stocks, and Courtney's pretty, giving them a combined budget of over $4.3 million. As someone who had the foresight to move cash both to AMC and GameStop, I'm looking forward to bringing that same level-headed analysis to... Sweetie, you're doing it again. I mean, your financial advisor is Eater 69 on Reddit. Look, I know you spent 10 minutes on Wall Street bets, and now you think you're this financial guru, but... Hey, it worked, didn't it? Our first stop brings us high atop the Hatai Tai Hills to the Cosgrove Estate, a mid-century five-bedroom, four-bath mansion offering over 2,500 square meters of luxurious potential. My first impression of the home was that it needed some work. The entire place was empty, full of dust and cobwebs. It also had this really creepy basement. I don't know about this place. Also, I don't think there's any other black people in New Zealand. The neighborhood here feels so safe. I loved the overall vibe of the home, and I can just tell the basement would be perfect for Randall's man cave. The hell are you talking about? This place is creepy as shit. Oh, come on. It's not that bad. Baby, there's bloodstains on the wall, and it literally smells like rotten flesh. Like you know what rotting flesh smells like. Smells like your stank ass. Awkward! I cringe as I'm legally obligated to tell Randall and Courtney that this home was the location of horrific murders brought about by a terrible Sumatran curse. Yeah, I think I've heard enough. It's gonna be a hard no for me. Babe, the fine people of Sumatra would not put a curse on this basement. I mean, they make our coffee, and I haven't noticed any voodoo curses. Have you? You know that's not a fair comparison at all, right? Oh, you're just a scaredy cat, Randall. Come on. Don't be such a little baby. You know I hate when you do that voice with me. Courtney leads Randall down to the basement, where gnashing, growling sounds come from behind the cellar door. I implore Courtney not to go near it, but she refuses my advice. (sighs) Yeah, get used to it, buddy. It's probably just a harmless little wombat. I learned on the plane ride over that they're native to this country. I'm about to remind Courtney for the third time that New Zealand is in Australia when she opens the cellar door against everyone's better judgment. Oh shit! A zombie! Uh, what the hell? Honey, are you okay? I begin to panic as I consider this might have a negative impact on my commission rate. I'm fine, I'm fine. It's just a little blood. Now, about this basement, as I was saying, um, I think it has great potential for... Uh, what did you say, baby? Oh, really? I watch a smile creep across Randall's face. The commission's looking promising after all. 
baby, if I wanted to throw loud parties every weekend in the living room, what would you think about that? Uh-huh. And if I wanted to watch movies with the volume all the way up, what would you say about that? Right, right. And uh, when your parents come to visit, would you think about having them stay down here with the zombie creature? Oh, thank God. We'll take it. Will Randall and Courtney make this epic three-story mansion into their new home? Will Randall decide to trade one domestic curse for another? Find out next on Homeseekers New Zealand! From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventner, in Whiteout. Nick is a bit of a lush, preferring whiskey to water and bar hopping to exercise. But when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. Whiteout, available now in ebook, hardcover and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.